Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Who you want to be surrounded with that day are people that you don't have to explain things to sometimes, and that's what's special for us. As the 20th anniversary of September 11th approaches, we talk with a firefighter about honoring the legacy of the 9-11 first responders. And we learn about an emerging market for liability insurance for law enforcement officers in the wake of recent police accountability reform. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Last summer, Colorado lawmakers passed sweeping police accountability legislation with bipartisan support as protests for racial justice were unfolding across the country. One of the provisions of that bill, SB 217, repealed something called qualified immunity, which means that officers can now be held personally liable for civil rights violations. KUNC reporter Lee Patterson found in her recent reporting that many officers have gotten out of law enforcement over the past year because of this financial risk. She joins us now with some new information on a proposed solution. Hi, Lee. Hey, Erin. The solution that we're talking about today is liability insurance for officers. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, explain exactly how qualified immunity works and how common it is. Qualified immunity is a legal concept that the U.S. Supreme Court established back in the 60s. It protects officers and some other public employees from personal liability when they're accused of violating someone's civil rights while doing their job. So the idea is that if an officer can show that he or she had a reasonable belief that they were acting in good faith and not violating a clearly established law, Qualified immunity will protect them from being held personally responsible in a financial way for their actions. Okay. And so how does the new Colorado law change qualified immunity here? Yeah, so SB 217 removes the qualified immunity defense, which allows people to bring civil rights claims directly against individual officers in Colorado court. So it basically creates a pathway at the state level to sue. Uh, Under the law, you know, the specifics are that officers can be held responsible for 5% of a settlement or $25,000, whichever is less. Now, after Colorado's legislation uh, was signed into law over the summer, uh, New Mexico and New York City have also moved to limit qualified immunity. Here in Colorado, uh, one consequence that I've been hearing about in my reporting on how policing's changed over the past year is that this particular provision of the very large bill is causing some officers to get out of policing entirely. They and you know their families and spouses are, are worried that a wrong move on the job could cost them their savings. It's basically just too large of a financial risk. Right. And so this is where the liability insurance for officers would fit in? Yeah, exactly. So I've been in touch with a small company called Primus Insurance. Uh, they're based in Texas. They sell policies to auto dealerships, and starting in October, they're going to be offering law enforcement liability insurance in Colorado only, and that is in direct response to the new law here. We're kind of solving a problem on all sides. 
So uh, on one side, you have the you have the police officers who can now be on the hook for these costs. This is Jeff Harrison explaining he's the president of Primus Insurance. I mean, the thing that you got to understand is every industry out there has some kind of liability insurance. It doesn't matter if you're a notary. It's it's unusual for there to be an industry today that doesn't have any liability, professional liability coverage. On the other side, Harrison sees the taxpayers, basically, because what oftentimes happens is that when an officer is found to have violated a citizen's civil rights, their municipality will indemnify them, meaning it will pay the amount of the settlement, which is effectively using taxpayer dollars. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's all the taxpayer. So there are lots of examples of this. In March, the city of Minneapolis agreed to pay $27 million to George Floyd's family after his death. Now, taxpayers probably aren't um, paying for this directly out of pocket. Departments and cities have insurance for this stuff, but these departments are publicly funded, of course. Now, under Colorado's new law, if the police department or sheriff's office finds that an officer did not think that what they were doing was lawful, so they did not act in good faith, that officer can be held personally liable for, again, 5% of the settlement or $25,000. There may be exceptions, though. Uh, It's still early days. The city council in Greenwood Village, for example, passed a resolution last year following the passage of the police accountability bill, saying basically that their officers won't act in bad faith and that they will keep paying. This past session, the legislature did pass a bill prohibiting municipalities from doing that. Now, how will the police liability insurance piece actually work? It hasn't launched yet, but Jeff Harrison, the president of that company, says that officers would pay a monthly premium of around $25 a month with no deductible. But as is the case with auto insurance, rates can fluctuate depending on behavior. If they do take um, de-escalation training or things like that, we can lower rates. Misconduct, for example, could raise rates. And when the company has to pay out $25,000 for a civil rights violation, that would definitely raise rates. It's important to know that there is already some police liability insurance out there. Harrison says most officers don't have it. In some cases, it's way too expensive or it only uh, covers off-duty activities. Um, Boulder PD did confirm this, that it's not common for officers to have insurance. Uh, Boulder County Sheriff Joe Pelly did too. He told me in an email that personal liability insurance for officers is really a new thing, specifically in the aftermath of Colorado's police reform legislation and that folks right now are really starting to hunt around for this type of insurance. Now, what about the sponsors of the Colorado police reform bill? What do they make of the idea of liability insurance for officers? I checked in with Representative Leslie Harrod. She was one of the prime sponsors of that bill. And over text, she said that, yes, she is interested in liability insurance. She thinks it's a good idea, but no, that she does not have any plans to um, introduce legislation requiring it or anything like that. Great. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks for your ongoing coverage of policing in Northern Colorado. You're welcome. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Yesterday, we told you how the drug is impacting Western states, including Colorado. Madeline Beck continues our look at the fentanyl problem today by telling us how prosecutors are using a federal law to target dealers in overdose deaths. 
And just a note, this story contains mentions of drug use and may not be suitable for all listeners. Jonathan Ellington grew up in Covington, Kentucky, playing sports like soccer. His dad, Dave Ellington, says he never met a stranger and was a good student. When he was a junior in high school, though, his dad said he had a knee injury. Long story short, there was, uh, through the medications that were prescribed, the oxycodone, uh, he was, uh, became addicted to painkillers. But he got clean, and then he headed out west to Colorado. He loved skiing. He ended up working at the historic Jerome Hotel in Aspen, built in 1889 and visited by the rich and famous like Hunter S. Thompson. But then Jonathan broke his hand and got back on painkillers. And he bought some from the wrong person. It was in a bottle that was a medication bottle, as if it came from a pharmacy. It had a person's name on it, the person that actually sold him that. They weren't painkillers, but fentanyl pressed into pills that looked like oxycodone. It was 2017. Jonathan died at the age of 30. Basically, it took very, very little, and he died very, very quickly. Fentanyl can be 50 to 100 times as potent as morphine. Police found the man behind the pills, Bruce Holder. His case highlights a new way prosecutors are going after fentanyl crimes. They found he trafficked thousands of pills from Mexico and had his wife and kids deal them, even though he knew they were fentanyl and were killing people. continued to distribute, and this continued even after his arrest in August of 2018. Holder was found guilty of conspiring to distribute fentanyl, resulting in death. He faces a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years and could be locked up for life. His sentencing is in October. Matt Kirsch is the acting U.S. attorney for the District of Colorado. He says these kinds of convictions spring from a federal law they started using a decade ago. The first couple that we did were actually against healthcare professionals. And more recently, we have been using the tool against street dealers. But he says they really want information on who's supplying the dealers. If they get it, dealers could get a shorter sentence. Jason Jason Sawyer is a sergeant with the Drug Task Force at the Grand Junction Police Department. We sat at a table in a conference room behind a maze of hallways and locked doors. He says his department is one of the many looking more closely at fentanyl overdoses. We've started in the last year, maybe two, um, started investigating them as homicides or manslaughter type investigations. Sawyer says homicide investigations take more resources. Instead of one or two hours, it can take six to eight hours to process a crime scene. But he hopes if dealers face stiff consequences for fentanyl deaths, they'll be more careful about what they sell. The people that are dealing it are the ones that make the impact in several people's lives. However, some question whether law enforcement or courts should be involved at all. The Drug Policy Alliance is a nonprofit based in New York that advocates for an end to the drug war. Emily Kaltenbach is the senior director in their New Mexico office, the state that has had the largest problem with opioids in the Mountain West. She says police shouldn't be charging drug dealers like they'd charge murderers. Who is that going to impact? It's going to impact communities that have been the focus of the drug war for decades. That is, low-income communities and communities of color. And Kaltenbach argues arresting people doesn't stop the flow of fentanyl. All it does is it cuts off that one piece of supply and another one pops up. Supply and demand does not change with increased sensing. 
Of course, this is part of the larger discussion nationally about what law enforcement's role should be when it comes to mental health and substance abuse. But one thing is certain. Fentanyl is a problem that's only getting worse. Recently, Wyoming officials seized about $150 million worth of fentanyl being driven through that state in one shipment. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. Tomorrow, we'll wrap up our series on fentanyl with a look at possible solutions, including helping people identify fentanyl in drugs. You can find other stories in our series at KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. This Saturday will mark the passage of 20 years since the September 11th attacks. Events to commemorate the anniversary are taking place around the nation and here in Colorado. One of the largest is the 9-11 Memorial Stair Climb at Red Rocks Amphitheater, which is a way to honor the firefighters who lost their lives at the World Trade Center. The climb at Red Rocks has been taking place since 2009, but it's not the only one in Colorado, nor is it the first. Back in 2004, just a few years after 9-11, a handful of firefighters gathered at a building in Denver to climb the stairs in a demonstration of camaraderie and support. We're joined now by one of those firefighters. Oren bersagel Breeze is the Division Chief of Training with the Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department. Oren, thank you so much for being here today. It's my honor. Thanks for having us. I want to start by talking about that very first stair climb in Denver back in 2004. How did that come together? So a few of us were gathering about once a month, uh, as you mentioned, for camaraderie training, um, just talking fire stuff, talking family stuff, just kind of being there for each other. And and part of that was an element of physical training. Uh, That's obviously very important to the fire service. So Uh, The first Saturday of every month, we had been gathering at a building in Denver and climbing stairs just for that purpose. And then as September rolled around, you know, we kind of thought, wow, instead of just the the first random Saturday, let's let's get together on the 11th. And then as we started climbing that day, we also uh, realized, you know, like, why don't we instead of just stopping it, you know, an arbitrary set of stairs when we got tired, let's push and do 110 flights, which was the height of the World Trade Center. Uh, So a couple of us that gathered that day had personal connections to FDNY members that were killed. Uh, One of us um, actually knew uh, an FDNY member, was close friends with one, and uh, a couple of the rest of us had ties through other ties. And um, so it it kind of evolved pretty quickly that day. Um, And, uh, you know, when we finished, um, we didn't know that that would turn into an event that that would transcend time, but you know, we were real proud and, and felt really good about what we had done that morning. And what I thought was interesting is you did it a couple of years and then it got a little bigger. Uh, you had a kind of a waiting list of um, people wanting to do that climb. Talk about that and, and what happened. So the, the second year that we gathered, you know, we had invited a few other folks. There were 12 of us that second year. Um, the third year, then the word got out and we had 250 people. And then the fourth year is when we started to limit it. We knew that the the interest had, had gained a momentum of its own among the firefighting community. And uh, the building certainly couldn't support just an endless number of folks. So, um, you know, again, we, we just decided we needed to limit the amount of people that were climbing. And instead of being random with that number, we uh, realized that 343 was the right number. That was the number of FDNY members killed on 9-11. So every year since then, 
we've um, completed or filled up our registration of 343 firefighters um, climbing. And so the decision was made then to add a second climb, and this is the one uh, that began at Red Rocks. Did you have a hand in kind of helping to set that up? Uh, backhanded, potentially. Like our climb had um, our climb had filled up, and uh, the the folks that ended up starting up at Red Rocks um, uh, did so because they really wanted to continue to climb and, and needed a space to do that. So. Uh, the first year that they did it, they put it together in a real short time frame. That climb is a little bit different than ours in two regard. One is it's at an outdoor amphitheater versus in a building. Um, and then, of course, theirs also is open to the public, uh, not just firefighters only. So they see um, tremendous turnout every year. We kind of work together a little bit, but they really got something special going over there for sure. Now, do you participate in both climbs, you know, maybe one one year and one another year? Unfortunately, I don't get to do that, except for last year. Both of our climbs are, were able to do it on the morning of September 11th. We're very fortunate uh, at the downtown climb to have a wonderful relationship with Brookfield Properties, who uh, manages uh, 1801 California. And the tenants of that building are just incredible with their support of, of allowing us to be in the building, no matter if it's a weekday or weekend. Um, we get signs put up in the stairwell. We get drinks and food donated and and just have a wonderful experience with the, the tenants themselves. And the Red Rocks climb also occurs on the morning of the 11th. And so um, normally we're not able to, um, to see each other's events anymore. Last year, neither of us were able to have the climb that we normally do. So some of the, the organizers of the Red Rocks climb came with us and we climbed together downtown. Uh, and we did the 110 stories at the building. There was about 10 of us that climbed that morning. And then we actually went out to Red Rocks and we did another 110 stories out at Red Rocks. And we were able to climb out there with the family of, of one of the FDNY members that, is, that died on 9-11. And so we did, we did two climbs that day, but it was a wonderful opportunity to get together and just sort of remember why we do this and who we do it for. And, and it was good to share the day with each other. And why is it important for firefighters to have their own stair climb, the one that happens in the Denver building? I think what's important about it is it most directly emulates um, some of what happened on 9-11. Of course, I'm not going to pretend to suggest that we can emulate what their experience was like that day. But by climbing in a building and by climbing with other firefighters, what we actually end up doing is making it almost a, a memorial meets training event, meets uh, physical fitness, meets um, uh, an incident command structure. And so it's something that you know, we just can't do when with the public, but, you know, there's personally, uh, there's not a lot of other people I'd rather spend the day with than other firefighters. It was a, an experience that if you were a firefighter in 2001, obviously you won't forget what that felt like that day, but just who you want to be surrounded with that day are people that, that you don't have to explain things to sometimes. And that that's what's special for us. We can just look at each other and we know why we're there and what we're doing it for and, and who we want to be around. Right. And I'm wondering what the atmosphere is like in the Denver building climb. And what do you think about when you're making that climb? It's, it's a lot of introspection. We ask our climbers and then we also do the same as organizers and we get the opportunity to, opportunity to do the climb, to be focused on, on each other, but also to be thinking about um, what might happen if we were to encounter a fire as we got higher into the building to, to sort of think about what that would be like. The stairs are actually pretty quiet. You hear a 
during the climb. When you have 343 people in a stairwell, the building that we do it in is we're able to climb 55 floors in one time. So we do that twice. What you hear is a pretty steady drumbeat of footsteps up the metal stairs all the way to the top. And really the only noises outside of that are encouragement from the, the building tenants or from each other, just supporting each other through, through the climb. It's not easy. And we don't have anything to do at the end. Unlike September 11th, where they were saving lives and fighting fire, we don't have anything to do at the end except remember. When you think about the Red Rocks climb, I'm wondering what you've heard about reasons that people have for coming. I know that, for example, there's a, a middle school from Douglas County that that generally comes out and brings almost their entire middle school population and does it as like a field trip. And for them, it's obviously about being able to share the story and pass on the history lesson to their students. And I think for other folks, you know, we're getting this year, the 20th anniversary as we get further away from September 11th, that was kind of a seminal moment in a lot of our lives. And so I think it's a way to, to connect back to that um, and, and to remember how we all felt. Oren, I wanted to ask about uh, something a little bit different. This February, a large piece that was recovered from ground zero made its way to Colorado, and it's now part of a special memorial at the Castle Rock Public Safety Training Facility, I believe. And you were a huge part of the efforts to get it here. It took several years to get it here. Talk about how this 350-pound piece of steel came to Colorado, and why did you feel it was important to bring it here? So we actually uh, were contacted through the Stair Climb program by the folks that organized the Erie, Pennsylvania 9-11 Memorial And they had some extra steel left over from their memorial creation. And with the steel that comes from the World Trade Center, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey requires that it's not in private collection, that it be displayed publicly. So they reached out and we were able to work with them to get the steel out here uh, to Castle Rock. And yet it took a little bit of time to find the right place and the right way to display that. A 350 pound piece of steel is not... Not very easy to move around, but it was important for us. The the town of Castle Rock and the Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department have been extremely, extremely supportive of the stair climb program and of generally remembering 9-11 and what's transpired since then. And so when we were able to get it put into place, it's at our training center right now. And so it serves two functions there. One, of course, is that it's available for public to come and look at. And, you know, I mentioned earlier with the with the stair climb being a tangible thing that you can do, this is a tangible thing that you can go touch. You can put your hands on it and, and make a connection and, and feel what that steel felt like and what it may have been part of. And then the other thing, it being at our training center, at our public safety training center, where both the Castle Rock Police and the Fire Department have our training offices, um, it serves as a, as a point of imp- inspiration and remembrance for us as we head out onto the drill grounds or into the classrooms about why and what we do. Well, lastly, this year marks a pretty significant milestone, 20 years since the attacks. What is the lasting impact like for you personally and for the firefighter community? What are you going to be thinking about on, on September 11th? For the fire department community as a whole, 9-11 changed our profession, period. It changed the way that 
that we operate. It changed the way that we think through things strategically and tactically. And while not every city, including ours, has high rises, it lessons learned from that day, from incident command to accountability to other things, have translated and transcended every organizational level and every geographic area. Beyond that, the camaraderie has always existed in the fire service. Um, the, the brotherhood and sisterhood that is the fire department makes it a very special place to be. And that's further emphasized with the events of 9-11 and, and what's happened since then. I think that as, as we climb this year, it becomes more and more important to acknowledge the sacrifice that the families have made, that they continue to make today, not only what the, the FDNY members heroically did on September 11th, but that their legacies continue to be shared and their stories continue to be told. You know, I have, I have a middle schooler and an elementary school kid at home, and, and neither of them, of course, were alive on September 11th, but, but they know the names of some of the folks, and they know the stories of what happened, and we continue to share that stuff. And I think that that becomes our mission as we get older and as time passes, is to ensure that, that we're able to pass on that information, that we're able to tell the stories of heroism, that we're able to continue to emphasize the legacies of the FDNY members and their families. Oren Bersagel-Breeze is the Division Chief of Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department. Oren, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was my honor. Thanks for having me. This weekend, more than 40 memorial stair climbs will take place around the country, including three here in Colorado. The climb at Red Rocks Amphitheater is open to the public, although the number of participants is limited this year because of the pandemic. Money raised through memorial stair climb events helps fund programs that support families of local firefighters through the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll get the latest on the COVID-19 vaccine booster. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.